Um, firstly, I'm completely delighted to be uh, invited to speak to you, so thank you for coming. And I understand some of you have come from miles away, from other countries, from across the sea, etc. So I'm very appreciative. Um, I'm going to start by looking at some introductory questions. Um, just so we know, I mean, I'm a philosopher, so you'd expect me to define my terms. Um, so that's how I'm going to start. But then I'm going to go on to look at a particular issue. Um, but let's look at first at these introductory questions. What is ethics? What's biotechnology? And what's bioethics? Um, so what do you think ethics is? I mean, I look at you here. I, I, there's nobody here who's going to have trouble with that question. Um, so what is the question? What, what is ethics? Um, okay, so ethics is the study of what we should and shouldn't do. Um, it's the study of which actions are right and which actions are wrong. Um, and very importantly, it's the study of action. And I remember as an undergraduate, as a very new undergraduate, being told that ethics is the ultimate practical subject and thinking, doesn't sound right somehow. But actually, when you think about it, if you don't have actions, you don't have ethics. Um, ethics is the study of, of action par excellence. Um, so action is important. Let's reflect on it. Um, if I trip over a carpet, or I pretend to trip over the carpet, only one of those is an action. Which one? What the word? The second one, pretending to trip over the carpet. Exactly, that's, that's right. Why is that the action and the former not? It's conscious. What do, what do you mean by conscious? I mean, I was conscious, but I'm going to pretend to. Okay, I have chosen it, haven't I? I've chosen it, I've done it intentionally. If I trip over the carpet, then something has happened to me. I haven't, I haven't done anything. I mean, there's a sense of it, I've done something. Um, but I, I haven't done it, have I? I haven't chosen to do it. Um, and so an action is a behaviour that we've chosen that we've performed intentionally, that we've performed for reasons. Uh, I mean, what are the reasons that I might pretend to trip over the carpet to make you laugh, to make you feel sorry for me? Um, wh whatever <laughs> the reasons are, um, there will be reasons if I'm doing it intentionally. Um, so that's why action is important. So we act when we choose to do something. I've just said all that. Um, so knowledge itself is never right or wrong. It's never good or evil. Um, the only thing that's good or evil, or, or right or wrong, is what we do with that knowledge. Our actions, what we choose, or the use to which we choose to put um, that knowledge. Um, and biotechnology, okay, that's, that's looked at what ethics is. Okay, let's look at what biotechnology is. Here's, here's a definition from an excellent book. <laughs> hmm? Nobody's noticed that. <laughs> you, take, you get it where you can. Okay, 
so biotechnology, um, the important thing to note about this definition is that biotechnology is not to do with biology, or rather it is to do with biology, but it's also just as much to do with every other um, science. It's the application of all sciences and all technologies, and where the bio bit comes in is the subject matter. Um, so we're applying sciences and technologies to living organisms, to biological organisms, um, and that's why it's called bio. So it's both interdisciplinary and intradisciplinary. Um, it it's really is a major thing because it takes it right, right across the sciences, right across the applied sciences. And biotechnology, um, it enables us to perform many actions that um, we haven't hitherto been able to perform. So does anyone know what this thing here is? Well, let me introduce you to Cynthia. Um, this is the first man-made um, organism. Um, this is the organism that Craig Ventor created from his building blocks. So it's, that's not something that occurs in nature. It's something that we put together from the building blocks of life. Um, so we can engage in cloning uh, by somatic cell nuclear transfer. That's quite important because we've always engaged in cloning. Every, every time you take a cutting from a plant, you're cloning a plant. But somatic cell nuclear transfer is the process by which Dolly was created. You, you've probably all heard of Dolly. Um, and so we can do that. Well, until we could do that, um, we weren't able to engage in cloning by somatic cell nuclear transfer. So it's a completely new type of action. Um, we can genetically modify plants, animals, and human beings. Now, it's always the case that we've always been able to do that by selective breeding, but now we can actually do it by manipulating the genes. We can cut out the genes, we can splice them in with other genes, and we can put them back. We can put strawberry genes into goldfish, or, or I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> um, we, can, we can do all sorts of interesting things. We can make... Uh, Fish, rabbits glow in the dark, and so on. And we can work at the nano level. And th this is amazing. The nano level is so, so small um, that I'd like to be able to tell you how small it is. But is there somebody here who can tell us? 10 to the minus 9. Nine. Nine. There you are. That's very small. <laughs> um, and, and when you're working at that level, things have properties that they don't have above the nano level. It enables us to... to um, well, to look at the things, for example, the skin of a shark, and to make use of the properties had by the skin of a shark, um, to create bathing suits that will be banned from the Olympics because they help the swimmers go far too fast. Um, amazing. And we can even create life forms that are not known in nature. Yes, which is a, is a life form. I mean, it does well, reproduce, breathe. It, it is a really alive. Um, and also, Google at the moment is, is setting up this thing to, to, so we'll all live forever, eventually. So, so we can, we'll soon be able to make each other immortal, perhaps. <laughs> okay, but the big question is, should we do these things? So it's all very well being able to do them. But the minute you get a new action that hasn't been performed before, you haven't been able to perform before, 
the moral question is triggered. Um, okay, we can do this, but should we do it? I mean, if, if Google is able to make us all live forever, um, should, should we agree to be made to live forever? Very big question, that. Interestingly, when, when I put that to um, undergraduates or to sixth formers, as I do quite often, the men are all gung-ho and the women are not. Um, which is interesting, but that's probably because I've just told them that if you want to live forever, then you can't eat pizza and you can't have children. Uh, and I think it's the latter that puts the women off. Okay, so this, this question, should we do it, is triggered in two contexts. Firstly, the individual context. So let's say that Google makes it possible for us to become immortal. You now face the question, if you can afford it, um, should I become immortal? And that, that's a, a very interesting question for each one of us, um, whether we'd like to live forever. I mean, we'll have an accident eventually, but um, until then. And also the social context. Uh, I mean, at that point, you get the question, well, should governments outlaw it? I mean, so, for example, as soon as Dolly's birth was announced, um, nearly every government in the world, I and mean, it was quite amazing, within two months of Dolly's birth, um, there were um, every single government in the world who passed legislation to prevent the cloning of human beings. Um, so that's one way you might respond to um, a biotechnological technological advance is outlaw it. Um, or you might regulate it. So IVF is regulated, so is therapeutic cloning. Therapeutic cloning is producing a clone for the purposes of research. So in England, therapeutic cloning is permitted, but only under licence, and the clone must be destroyed by the 14th day. Um, so you're allowed to do it, but only if you ask nicely and persuade people that, that you're doing it correctly and you destroy the embryo. Um, so reproductive cloning is outlawed, therapeutic cloning is regulated, and, of course, we, we also decide, as a government, as a state, whether we should fund these activities. So, in uh, America, therapeutic cloning is not outlawed. Um, not, well, it is regulated, um, but the, the government won't fund it. It can only be funded by private companies. Um, so, whereas in this country, we fund therapeutic cloning, if you're lucky enough to get a licence. In the States, that's not the case. So, moral questions in two contexts. The minute you get an action that you haven't before been able to um, do. And that's where bioethics comes in. Because bioethics considers these new actions and asks, well, okay, is reproductive cloning right? Is it wrong? Uh, or is it neither right nor wrong? Is it neutral? So, bioethics is that branch of ethics that deals with the rightness and wrongness in individual and social contexts of the actions that are made possible by biotechnology. Okay, now we know what we're talking about, so let's talk about it. Um, I'm going to introduce you to ju just one bioethical issue, um, biotechnology and security. Um, much research in biotechnology is dual-use, so-called dual-use technology. And dual-use technology arises when it can be used for either good or evil. And, I mean, many technologies are like this. Think of nuclear technology. Our nuclear power can provide us with lights and heat and, and so on. But it can also 
um, result in what happened in Hiroshima and so on. So nuclear power is a dual-use technology. Um, but the example I'm going to talk about is research um, into uh, synthesizing viruses. Um, now, synthesizing viruses is, is to create a virus by synthesis, putting genes together until you get a virus. So you're, you're synthesizing genes in such a way that you end up with a virus. Um, I'll tell you more about this as, as I go along. But this research can certainly be used for good. Um, I mean, if we're going to ever produce a, a virus for the H5N1 avian flu um, virus or the swine flu virus, then we're going to have to um, get this virus and, and work on it. We need to be able to work on the virus itself in order to produce a vaccine. But once you have the, the virus, once you know its genetic code, um, and so on, it could be used for, for, for evil. It could be weaponized uh, in principle and used... Well, you can imagine that if, if um, a virus was released in our cities, um, you'd have something really rather nasty. So this is a dual-use technology. Uh, and I'm going to give you some examples. Here's one example. 2001 at Stony Brook... Um, a team of biologists synthesized a polio genome from scratch. Now, what I, when I say from scratch, what I'm talking about here is that they had um, commercially available oligonucleotides, the, the bits of DNA that are important to build the virus, and they had a map of the polio genome from the web. And what they did is they put together the oligonucleotides in such a way that they created, you know, in accordance with the map, so that the polio virus was created. And they knew that they'd created it properly, that this really was the polio virus, um, because it was both live and infectious. Um, they used it to paralyse mice, and mice are very good moral models for human beings, so the chances were, I mean, nobody tried this, but the chances were it could also be used to paralyse human beings. And here's the, for anyone who wants to follow up any of the references, I've put the references on all my slides. Okay, that was 2001. And uh, also in 2001, oh, oh, let me tell you a bit about polio. I'd forgotten I was going to do this. Okay, polio, um, it's been eradicated from all but three countries of the world, three or four countries, because China is a bit iffy on polio. Um, and Afghanistan, Nigeria, and another one that I've forgotten. Um, as recently as the 1980s, in fact, I expect nearly everyone in this room knows somebody who's been affected in, by polio. And put up your hands if, if you know somebody. Yes, nearly everybody. Which doesn't surprise me, because it was only in the 1980s that we managed to eradicate this disease. Um, 5 to 10% of those who are infected um, die. Um, and it paralyzed 350,000 people a year. It's a hell of a lot of people. And, of course, that was mainly children under five. This is a virus we really do not want to see back. Um, but we can make it in the laboratory. Um, also in 2001, so this is my second example, a team of Australian microbiologists, um, using genetic engineering techniques this time, um, produced... Um, I mean, it was by accident. They were trying to produce mouse infertility. 
I mean, we can see why mounting the fertility would be a very useful thing to have. <laughs> um, but they accidentally produced a strain of uh, mousepox. Mousepox is very similar to pol smallpox. Now, this strain was not just mousepox, it was super mousepox. Um, it killed mice that were naturally resistant to mousepox. Um, mice that had been vaccinated against it, uh, so the vaccine was useless. Um, and it also killed mice who'd been given antiretroviral drugs. So this wasn't just mousepox, this was super-duper mousepox. Um, now, mousepox is very closely related to the smallpox virus. Um, that killed 300 million people in the 20th century. One hell of a lot of people. It kills a third of those infect it infects. Um, actually, there are different strains also of the variola virus, of the smallpox virus. There, there are, there's one strain that um, has you hemorrhaging um, from the, almost the minute you get it. You hemorrhage from every orifice of your body until you bleed out. Um, it can also make you blind. Um, so there are, I mean, there's smallpox, which is nasty, and there's super-duper smallpox, which is even nastier. Um, but smallpox was eradicated in 1980, and we call a disease eradicated when it hasn't been known for two years in any country in the world. So smallpox has been successfully eradicated globally, um, which is a huge success, given what it did before. Um, it's, we, we still have two um, samples of the vaccine. Does anyone know where they are? Good. Yeah, one's in Russia, the other's in America. That's right. And they, there's talk now of whether we need these um, samples of the virus because, of course, as long as you've got them, they're, they're quite dangerous and they have to be kept under conditions of very strict biosafety. And, of course, now that we can create these viruses from nothing, why do we need to keep these samples of viruses um, around? Anyway, here's my third example. Um, 2006 this time, microbiologists, um, again in the US, um, synthesized um, Spanish flu. Now, this was achieved uh, another different technique, reverse genetics from an archived sample of lung tissue. So they dug up this woman who had died in 1918 of Spanish flu. They looked at her lungs, presumably under very strict conditions of biosafety, and they reverse engineered um, her lungs, uh, her, the, um, the virus. And this, Craig Ventor, uh, who's the chap who produced Cynthia, the first man-made organism, called this the first true gen Jurassic Park um, scenario. So this virus was dead, and it was brought back to life. Um, just after the Spanish... Uh, just after the First World War, Spanish flu. Anyone who watches Downton Abbey? Okay, what, what's the link with Spanish flu? What's her name? What's her name died? Lavinia. Um, so everyone comes back, the war's over, everyone's thinking, oh, isn't this wonderful? And then suddenly, um, 50 to 100 million people died from Spanish flu. Again, this is a virus we really, really don't want back. Um, okay, so this is my final example, um, but we're coming right up to date now. In 2012, 
And these people from the Erasmus Medical Center in Holland um, and Wisconsin-Madison, um, they separately, so they weren't working together, they separately tried to mutate H5N1 um, to see if it could be tr transmitted between ferrets. Now, ferrets, like mice, are a good model for human beings. If this virus can be transmitted between ferrets, it can probably be transmitted between human beings. That was the thought. Uh, and, of course, this is what we really don't want. Um, and the reason we don't want it is that so far there have only been 566 cases of bird flu, that's globally, um, but in 59% of those cases it was fatal. Um, every single one of those cases the bird flu was caught from birds. Um, it hasn't yet been transmitted from a human being to another human being. Um, if this were to become possible, and of course this is what they're trying to produce in trying to produce one that can be transmitted um, from mammal to mammal, um, it, could be, it could rival Spanish flu as a killer. So this is another, we really do not want avian flu to become transmissible between human beings. Okay, so all the results that I've mentioned um, were, have been published in respectable scientific journals, in nature, in science, or in whatever. Um, and as with all scientific papers, they've been published with the methodology used and with the results achieved. Um, I mean, that's, that's perfectly normal. This is what happens in science. And publishing this research um, with its methodology and with its results is a very important part of science. I mean, a, a key value of science is transparency. Um, and that's because you can't do science well unless you're working together to replicate each other's experiments. So if I conduct an experiment and I get a certain result, um, I want to know whether you in your lab in Australia and Paul in his lab in America and Elizabeth in her lab in, in um, wherever she comes from, etc., can, can reproduce these results. Because if they can't, then there was probably a speck of dust on my microscope or, or something. I have done something wrong. Uh, there's something wrong with this experiment if nobody else can replicate my results. Um, and the only way I can ask you to replicate my results is to publish my results together with how I got them um, so that you can set out to replicate them. So transparency is key. Um, but, of course, all these papers, um, they're telling us how to produce a super strain of groundspot virus, how to produce the polio virus, how to produce the Spanish flu virus, how to produce um, a, a strain of avian flu which can be transmitted between, from mammal to mammal. Um, and if the, the knowledge and the skills and the equipment required to synthesize these viruses um, gets into the public domain, or while it is in the public domain, I mean, uh, it could become available to terrorists, to Al-Qaeda or whoever, um, or to lone wolf operators, I mean, people like um, the Unabomber, for those of you who've heard of um, Theodore Kaczynski, or how do you pronounce his name? Kaczynski. Um, the thought would be that they could, I mean, you can't just take the virus and, and release it. You'd have to weaponize it. 
Um, so you'd have to um, produce it in some way so that if the weather conditions are right, you release it into the environment and it, a cloud of it would infect a reasonable enough number of people that it would then spread. Wouldn't have to be that many people. But it's not easy to weaponize viruses. You know, I don't want to give the idea that this could be done like that. Um, it's quite difficult, in fact, to weaponize viruses. Um, and at the moment, we've got all these other things that could be done so much more effectively. I mean, if I want to kill everybody in Oxford, I'm probably better off making a dirty bomb um, or, or using chemicals. And if I, I can also put together sarin from the web. Um, so why bother weaponizing viruses? First, I'd have to synthesize them, then I'd have to weaponize them. So, okay, we're, we're talking about something that is quite difficult to do. But... Um, it's quite distressing for some people to know that everything you need to synthesize the smallpox virus is already available on the web. For example, uh, you can very easily get a map of the genome of the variola virus, of the smallpox virus. Um, it's freely available on the web. You don't even have to pay for it. You just download it and that you've got the, the recipe, if you like, for making smallpox. Um, there's also a primer for the synthetic biology on the web. Um, I mean, just put into Google primer for synthetic biology and up will come this, this list of instructions. Now, obviously, you'd have to be fairly sophisticated to understand them um, and certainly to, to actually act on them. Um, but it's there and it tells you how to use the bio bricks that are available and put them together in such a way that what you do is create a live virus. Um, the biobricks, so the fundamental building blocks um, of these viruses, again, freely available um, by open access. I mean, we've heard about open access, so all of us are, are required these days, once we have a paper published, within six months it's got to be made open access so everybody can read it on the web. Well, MIT's registry of biobricks is freely available online to anyone who wants to access it. Um, you can go onto eBay and get your gene splices. Um, you can get your industrial grade fridges. Um, you can even get the commercial kits by which to um, engage in synthetic biology, all available on the web. Okay, that's not free, you're gonna have to pay for that. Um, but it'll cost you 200 pounds for um, an industrial grade fridge. Yeah, maybe it's worth it if you want to kill everyone. Um, and of course, the basic raw materials, uh, the oligonucleotides, are actually available commercially. They're only 10 cents a pair, um, and actually they're, they're going down all the time. Um, and they're very rarely screened. Um, one of the reasons they're not screened is because um, the software to screen them would be very, very difficult to put together, because if you're going to make the, the smallpox virus, um, you're not going to go to this, sorry, I'm using you all the time, aren't I? But you're not going to go to this person and say, I want this, I want this, I want this. Because you're going to think, why does she want all this? Why does she want everything to work? Of course I'm not, I'm not that stupid. I'm going to go to you for a bit, and to you for another bit, and to you for another bit, and to you for another bit, and so on. Um, until I have everything I need to put together. Um, and how do you follow that? I mean, you, you'd have, every single order would have to go into a central database. And that would have to be not just England, it would have to be worldwide. I mean, that is a major um, thing to, to say that 
um, such orders should be screened. Um, in the mid-2000s, uh, James Ranson from The Guardian um, actually got part of the smallpox virus. He, he didn't get the whole thing. Um, all he had, he invented a company name, uh, he had a mobile phone number, a free email address, and a house in North London. So he wasn't even coming from Oxford University or, or even the Guardian newspaper. I mean, that might have caused people to look at it a bit more, but at least you know where somebody is. Um, the sequencing company that supplied this DNA had no idea why it was required, whether he belonged to a legitimate organisation, um, what he wanted it for. And actually there was um, also another one in, I think it was, um, was it in the New Scientist or something? Another chap who did that in a, in a way that was even more frightening. Um, and it's going to become much easier um, as the knowledge and the skills spread and synthetic biology is, is still a, a pretty new science um, and there, there are lots of graduate students who are working on it. Um, there are lots of postgraduates who are working on it, but there are not many mid-career scientists who were grown up. I mean, they've taken over working on it, but they weren't taught it right from the beginning. Well, these days we're teaching people right from the beginning um, the skills that are needed to do this. And who saw that wonderful, I think it was a Horizon program, was it Horizon? Anyway, but was, yes, it was Horizon. Uh, about synthetic biology. It was called Goat's Milk and Spider's Silk. Did anyone see that? No? Well, Goat's Milk and Spider's Silk was about synthetic biology. I, th I thought it missed a lot of tricks. It should have been talking about the sort of things I'm talking about now. It hardly <coughs> brought up the ethical issues. But what it did do is show us um, in the state, uh, a, a group in the States, a community group in the States, um, who were synthesizing um, all sorts of things. I mean, they were, they were splicing genes, cutting genes, splicing genes, and so on, in a garage in Texas, I think it was, and there were five-year-olds who were making fish glow in the dark, and, oh, look at this, mummy. Um, they were really enjoying this. I'm all for this. I mean, this is great fun. This is getting children really interested in science because it's getting them doing things that, that are really interesting for children. But on the other hand, it is giving them the skills that they need to, to produce all these things. Um, and a garage biologist, okay, but who remembers the days when, um, well, I, I'll tell you a personal story. My brother and his wife were um, watching television one night, there was a knock on the door, they lived in Sweden at the time. And it turns out that my nephew had been uh, hacking into the Swedish security um, network and so he was in trouble um, and that's what young people did in those days wasn't it uh, i mean what great fun uh, <laughs> and of course you have exactly the same thing once you've got computer parts software you can put together and build something new and uh, there are going to be lots of people who want to do this and now we've got bio bricks the fundamental building blocks of life that we can put together and what's more, you can do it in the comfort of your bedroom whilst your mum is downstairs saying, dinner's ready. <laughs> um, so there's no suggestion that, that these things are for anything but the best intentions. But again, you can see how they could be used for bad. 
Um, and it's very important to point out uh, that there are people who think that everything that I'm saying is scaremongering. Um, and this was in response to Randerson's piece in The Guardian. You, so you might want to have a look at that and see whether see what the arguments are against um, what I'm saying. Basically, he's talking about the difficulty of weaponising um, viruses and so on. Um, incidentally, I have just read the most brilliant thriller. It's called I Am Pilgrim. As I was reading it, I was thinking, has this man read my book? Um, <laughs> I don't think he could have done it. It's only just come out, and he would have had to put it together very quickly. Um, but, but this is a really good thriller, and he basically looks at a situation where somebody has synthesised um, the smallpox virus. It's horrendous. Um, OK, so, so some people think it isn't serious, and some people have made thrillers out of it. Um, but um, this chap, um, Michael Selgelid, Hastings Centre in the US, suggested that um, at the very least, scientific papers that pose a threat to security, um, so ones that could be used for evil, where the methodology could be taken and used, um, should be censored. Um, so perhaps just the methodology sense, um, section is redacted. Um, just we don't, we don't publish it for everybody to see, and especially not on the web. When he suggested this... Um, the editors of main journals got together um, and they gave this joint statement. So have a look at that. You yeah. can read that. Yeah. Well, I, I, no, these are very, very, I mean, the people who edit these papers know what they're talking about. They know what these papers They don't know what the future news of it can be. Yeah, I mean, on that basis, we might not have that's all right. Um, yes, well, well, we'll talk about this in a minute because we'll, we'll discuss this. But um, okay, these editors agreed in principle that, that um, it might be sensible to redact some of these papers. Um, and it was noted that, that even if you redact them so they're not publicly made available, made available pub publicly, um, obviously if somebody has a legitimate need, so if somebody um, rings up from the University of Oxford, presumably proves that they're from the University of Oxford and working on viruses for, for good reasons, they could have access to... Because you can't not make the methodology available to scientists who are working on the same thing. Um, but uh, when the research that I talked about into H5N1 flu virus was published, the, the last example I gave, um, the US National Advisory Board for Biosecurity, which was backed by the National Institute of Health in the States, uh, and that funded the work, um, they actually asked nature and science, because one of these studies was published in science and one was published in nature. They actually asked them to redact the studies. They were so worried that these studies, this, these are the ones, if you remember, that looked at whether avian flu could be transmitted from mammal to mammal. Um, they actually asked them to redact them. And both journals refused. Um, but they refused on the advice of the World Health Organization, and the World Health Organization um, 
pointed to the substantial immediate risk of H5N1. Because if that strain naturally mutates in such a way that it's transmitted from human being to human being, you could get a, an epidemic just like that. And so finding a, virus, uh, for a vaccine for this virus is, is of crucial importance. And the World Health Organization thought that that's more important than um, worrying about terrorists or lone wolf operators. So both studies were published in full with their methodology um, and it, again, you can read all about that here.